every year I prepare for Pentecost. It's interesting, on the Christian calendar, we prepare for Christmas, we prepare for Easter, few prepare for Pentecost. And yet Pentecost is the only day that we are told to prepare for. Nowhere did God tell anybody to prepare for Christmas. Nowhere did anybody was told to prepare for the resurrection because it caught everybody off guard. But they were told to prepare for Pentecost. Well, this year I went all out. I even opened a Facebook account, and I now Twitter. As, as amazing, as jarring as that may seem, it's true. I have graduated into the age of technology. But it's all for Pentecost. Because I believe, I believe in Pentecost. Any of you here believe in Pentecost? And of all things, we scheduled a trip to the Holy Lands on, and to be there on the Jewish Pentecost. The Sunday before we left, I received a telephone call from Jerusalem, from the pastor of the only evangelical church inside the old city of Jerusalem. And he said, if you ever happen to be in Jerusalem, we would love to meet with you because we want the College of Prayer to come and serve the church in Jerusalem. And I said, I'm going to be there Thursday. (laughs) And when they booked our flights, I got there. Sherry and I were to arrive the day before the rest of our group. So we had an extra day. So we went and met with these people our first night in Jerusalem. And of all things, we met at 55 Prophet Street. Who, who could write this script? I don't, know, I don't know. Well, we had a glorious time with these people on our first night there. We went to Bethlehem. This is the coolest thing in the world. In order to get into the church of Bethlehem, you've got to bend over. I thought, we ought to put every church door ought to be about three or four feet high, so you've got to humble yourself to get in. Anybody with me on that? They intentionally did this. You gotta go low. You gotta go low. There's something about going low. Oh, this, oh, I'm gonna get knocked over here. This is in Nazareth, where Jesus went into the synagogue. This is the synagogue, and that's basically the place where Jesus picked up the scroll of Isaiah and read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Right there! Would you please? Okay, this is the Sea of Galilee where Jesus had the miracle catch and He walked on water, but at least I swam in it. That's the Sea of Galilee. Swam in the Sea of Galilee. That is the mount where He gave that famous sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the mountain. This is where Jesus healed the woman who reached out her hand and touched His garment. Where He um, raised the boy from the dead and where He healed Peter's mother-in-law. This is the Jordan River where uh, Dominique Ice and several others, I think Ann Miller and others, were baptized in the Jordan River. This is our way into the upper room. The upper room where Jesus served the Passover meal, where He washed the disciples' feet, and where He sent them back after uh, as He was uh, about to ascend. This is me brimming over with joy about to enter the upper room. And God gave us such a moment. Everywhere we went, we spent about an hour of prayer, worshiping, and connecting not just with the sights, but connecting with God in those places. And I got overcome. I started preaching on the upper room inside. And I look around and it was just our group that was there. And then we broke out in worship and prayer. We prayed in four languages. It was the sweetest, sweetest time. Okay, that is the Mount of Olives from which Jesus stood... And before their very eyes, Acts chapter 1 and Luke 24, Jesus was taken up into heaven and the angel said, Why do you stand here gazing? This same Jesus who is taken up in front of you is going to come back in like manner to this same spot. And that is the sunrise over the Mount of Olives which reminds us that one day Jesus is going to put His feet right back on that same mountain. Can anybody give the Lord a a praise? This one is so incredible. We, A number of us just got down and spread out on the ground. That Those are steps going into the city of Jerusalem where we know for certain that Jesus walked. You don't know for sure that He walked everywhere. But we know without any doubt that He walked on those steps. And we just spread ourselves out on those steps when He went in. This is Sherry and I walking the Via Della Rosa where Jesus was carrying His cross having been scourged. Now this is me standing about 30 feet from the very spot where Jesus was crucified. That is the spot. Of all the archaeology that's been done, we are 99% certain that that is the very rock on which the cross stood that Jesus died. That one, I'm feeling it. You feeling it? That's the rock where he died. His blood still cries out from that ground for you and for me. That's not much of a picture, but that or within ten feet of that is right where Jesus rose. Where 
99.9% sure that that or within feet of it is where he rose. Now, we went there and designed our trip around Pentecost. Jewish Shavuot. It was Tuesday night, Thursday morning. We got up early on both days and went to the wall. I'm standing here in the middle of about 40,000 Jewish people. There were shofars. Scripture. They read the law. You can see the shofars. Uh, this is uh, on uh, the night before. You can see the Jewish uh, garb. I got a yarmulke. It says the uh, Western Wall that you wear as you approach the wall. But standing there in front of that wall, putting my hands on that wall, it is one of the sweet spots on earth to intercede. It was uh, an amazing time. Now, when we were standing on, we're right now standing on the Mount of Olives. Galilee is, is in front of us, and Jerusalem is behind us. This is where Jesus ascended. And this is where Jesus said, do not leave Jerusalem. Because it would have been very easy for the disciples to go back to what they knew in Galilee, back to their nets. Jesus said, don't do it. Don't go that way. Go that way. And we were here on the Mount of Olives when our leader's phone rings. It's for me. It's the pastor of the only church inside the old city, the only evangelical church. He says, Fred, I've met with the Baptists, with the Assemblies of God, I've met with a bunch of other pastors and we want to officially extend an invitation to, for you to come to Jerusalem and start the College of Prayer. Yeah. Yeah. We're standing on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem when we get this phone call. I'll never forget that moment. There's the church. Jerusalem Evangelical Alliance Church. You can read that a little easier. We went into their upper room. And our group uh, and theirs, we prayed together our last night there. The first night there, Sherry and I coincidentally were invited to meet with these believers. And on the last night, coincidentally, we were invited to go back and bring a bunch of our people to pray with a bunch of their people. And here's me hugging the pastor of that church. Jack Sarah is his name. Would ask you to pray about that as it unfolds. That we'd find the 
timing and the leading of God. Now every year I believe in preparing for Pentecost. But this year more than any other, preparing for Pentecost. God told the disciples to prepare for Pentecost. Jesus in the sovereignty of God could have ascended the day before Pentecost and there'd be no preparation time. But in the providence of God, He ascended and gave them ten days of preparation for Pentecost. There is something about preparing for Pentecost. And it is no accident that this morning, we in our study of the Bible are in the book of Acts. The book of Acts. Open your Bibles, take your notes. It's the book of Action. Some have called it the book of the Acts of the Apostles. I would more uh, be inclined, and I'm sure the Apostles would be more inclined to call it the action of the Holy Spirit. Because you take the Holy Spirit out of the book of Acts and you've got nothing. The Apostles can do whatever they can do, but they would do nothing of value, nothing worth writing about if it wasn't for the action of of the Holy Spirit. It begins Acts chapter 1 very similarly to the way Dr. Luke's other book begins. I wrote to you, O Theophilus, in my former book about all that Jesus began to do. When I began writing, my editor told me, don't write to the masses, write to one person. A good book is written with one person in mind. And that is exactly what Dr. Luke's approach is. He wrote his gospel to one person, O Theophilus. And he writes now the second book of Acts, O Theophilus. He refers to his former book. Theophilus means God-lover. O lover of God. We don't know whether this person is messianic. We don't know whether uh, they are Jewish or Gentile, but O lover of God. And anyone who is a lover of God, this book is for you. In my former book, I wrote the things Jesus began to do. Now in this book, I'm writing about things Jesus continues to do. Verse 4. Now the words of Jesus, on one occasion while Jesus was eating with them, He gave them this command. The word command here is the strongest word for command in the Greek language. It means to put them under military orders. Jesus put His disciples under military orders. Do not leave Jerusalem. Don't go back to Galilee. Don't go back to what you knew in terms of fishing or whatever your profession was before. Wait in Jerusalem for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, that verse becomes the outline for the whole book. Listen carefully. As Passover was the Jewish feast around which the Gospel of Luke centered... Pentecost is the Jewish feast 
around which the book of Acts centers. Passover, the Jewish feast, finds its fulfillment in the crucifixion of Christ. Pentecost, the Jewish feast of Pentecost, or as they call it, Shavuot, finds its fulfillment in the coming of the Holy Spirit as recorded in Acts chapter 2. Both events, the Passover and the crucifixion, and Shavuot and the giving of the Holy Spirit, form the central focus of both of Luke's books. The Gospel and the book of Acts. Now, as you read through the book of Acts, I would recommend that you mark in the margin of your Bibles, and I know some of you have already done it, but to mark every time you come across these key words. Resurrection, mark it with an R. Prayer, mark it with a P. Holy Spirit, mark it with an HS. Witness, mark it with a W. Kingdom, mark it with a K. Those are the themes of the book of Acts. Holy Spirit, for instance, is mentioned 70 times. Witness is mentioned 30 times. In Jerusalem, Acts chapters 1 through 7 cover Jerusalem and the witness of the believers in Jerusalem. And within a matter of a few months, they go from 11 followers of the Messiah to over 5,000 followers of the Messiah. 3,000 on Pentecost, 2,000 a few months later, and then on top of that, the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Quite a harvest among the Jewish population of Jerusalem. But then we see chapters 8 through 12, we shift from Jerusalem to now Judea and Samaria. Chapter 8, verse 1, a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So God sovereignly used persecution to scatter the church and to spread the gospel to move it from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And then you've got the Ethiopian eunuch who comes to faith in Christ and is baptized as a classic example of a Samaritan, someone who was in proximity, but who was a different ethnicity. And then you come to chapters 13 through 26. The whole second half of the book of Acts is moving to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 13, they're in the upper room in Antioch, and the Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, and God anoints them and sends them to the ends of the earth. And the last uh, we see in the book of Acts chapter 26, Paul is in Rome. Someone has said the book of Acts is the only book in the Bible that is not done being written. And I like that. It's not entirely theologically accurate. Of course it's done. And yet we understand the principle. God is still on the move. It's just the beginning. It's the beginning of the reaching of the nations. One of the reasons I love living in northeast Atlanta is because we can see the fulfillment of Acts 1-8 right at our doorstep. USA Today calls the northeast corridor of Atlanta, it calls this corridor the 
most ethnically diverse suburban community on earth. Now, there are urban centers that are more culturally diverse, but USA Today says there are no suburban communities more multicultural, with more languages spoken in Lilburn Elementary School than any other elementary school on earth. Isn't that interesting? We're right here, folks, to see the fulfillment of Acts 1-8 right at our doorstep, to become truly a house of prayer for all nations, right here. Praise God. Now, I want to get our arms around this, and then we're going to come back and unpack chapters 1 and 2 about Pentecost. As we see the outline of the book, if you'd open your notes, praying the book. Dr. Luke was a man of prayer. Now, just to go back for a moment to the Gospel of Luke, you remember each of the four Gospels, which we've looked at, each of them report on the same Jesus, but from a different camera angle. Matthew was the more Jewish gospel showing Christ the King. And so you've got Matthew recording the fact that that following his birth, Jesus was visited by kings from the east. And he's heralded as king frequently through the gospel. He takes the position of the rabbi. He climbs a mountain and sits down and his disciples come to him. It's reporting Jesus as the king, as the ruler. Luke's Gospel takes a different camera angle. He's reporting the same Jesus, but from a different angle. And it's not Christ the King. It's Christ the Son of Man. And so instead of being visited by kings, Luke's Gospel shows him visited by common shepherds. Luke includes, because he shows him the Son of Man, the fact that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. It shows Jesus growing up as a young boy. It includes the fact that He was circumcised. It includes the fact of the bodily ascension into heaven. It's the only Gospel that includes that. Why? Because it shows Jesus to be the Son of Man. Now, follow this. As man, how would Jesus work so many miracles? It was not out of His deity. While Luke does include the fact that He was fully God, it shows as it records in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, that Jesus, who was in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He emptied Himself of the independent use of the divine attributes. So He's left as a man. He was still God, but He did not tap into His deity in order to perform miracles. How did He perform miracles? He did it out of His Holy Spirit anointed humanity. So Luke's Gospel records the fact that Jesus stood up and read from the scroll of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me for He's anointed me to do my ministry. It was the fact that He was anointed by the Holy Spirit to do His ministry. Now follow this. You come to the end of Luke's Gospel. He's the only Gospel writer that includes where Jesus said, do not leave Jerusalem, but stay until you have been clothed with power. The same Holy Spirit that anointed me for my ministry wants to anoint you for your ministry. And Luke's Gospel, more than any other, includes the fact that Jesus was a man of prayer. Only in Luke's Gospel do we see Jesus spend the whole night in prayer before He called His disciples. Only in Luke's Gospel do we see Jesus 
on the Mount of Transfiguration praying. Only in Luke's Gospel do we see Jesus sweating drops of blood as He was praying. All this prayer, prayer, prayer through Luke's Gospel that the other writers did not include. Why? Because Jesus was fully man. And as fully man, He recognized He could never do the works of God apart from prayer. It was prayer that became the place where He tapped into the Holy Spirit to enable Him to serve in His full potential. Now... If that is true of Jesus, if Jesus needed to pray in order to fulfill His ministry, how much more do you and I need to be people of prayer? And that's why the whole book of Acts is a book of prayer showing how the disciples, knowing their humanity, knowing that apart from Jesus they could do nothing, knowing that they were nothing but utter failures, they couldn't even go one night without denying Jesus. They needed to pray. Why? Because they needed the Holy Spirit. They needed the Holy Spirit. Now, there are three M's in the book of Acts. First is miracles. Right away, Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were on the way to pray, and they said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. A miracle. Miracles. Then manifestations. Manifestations. The manifestation of tongues, but that's not all. The manifestation where Peter could walk down the street and his shadow touch the sick and they were healed. Talk about power. And where Paul later on, it said of Paul that his handkerchiefs were used to heal the sick and to drive out demons. His handkerchiefs. That's miracles. That's manifestations. And the third M is martyr. If you don't mind writing in your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and where it says witness, circle that. Draw a line to where you can write a word. And in there, the Greek word for witness is martyr. You see, martyr used to mean one who told the truth. One who gave an accurate account. That was a martyr. But because so many of the early Christians who became God's witnesses were killed for their faith. Now all we know when it comes to martyr is the fact that it's someone who laid down their life for Jesus Christ. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we receive power to be His witness, His martyr. It's not a matter of whether we're going to die or live. That's irrelevant. What matters is that we're going to give witness. And let me tell you, if you've got something wrong with your witness, it's a problem with the Holy Spirit and He can fix it. If you care more what people think than what God thinks, you've got a problem. The Holy Spirit can fix it. This doesn't say this is true for some people. It's true for everyone the Holy Spirit comes upon. It does, it's not a matter of personality. Well, I'm sort of introvertish. I'm not very outgoing. I'm not a good witness. If you're not a good witness, that is a serious problem because the Bible says when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be His witness. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. No one is exempt from this promise. This promise is for you. Forget your personality type. God will work through you whatever your personality type. That's why the Bible says, even in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, and they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb 
by the word of their testimony, for they love not their own lives so as to shrink from death. And may God make you and I His witnesses so that we will not be ashamed of the Gospel. Because we know that it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Jew or Arab, Greek, Israeli, Palestinian, whatever persuasion, the Gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone. And you can be His witness if you simply receive the Holy Spirit. He'll clothe you with power. If you're going to add a fourth M for the work of the Holy Spirit in result of prayer, it would be money management. You can't read the book of Acts without understanding that God got a hold of their checking accounts. God got a hold of their resources so that among the people of God there was no one who had need. I want that to be able to be said here of us. That there's none among us that have need. That we give generously to help those in need. That we would take on the needs of our church family and beyond. That's what happened when God got a hold of the church in Jerusalem. Now to understand the book of Acts, it's a good idea to read the book of Acts with an atlas, a world atlas. At least one in the Middle East. Now most Bibles have, have uh, maps that are very helpful in the back and it would be good. But when you do that, don't misunderstand the fact that Acts is more about people than places. In fact, two major people. It begins with the, the person of Peter and it ends with the person of Paul. You can't miss the fact that Dr. Luke was enamored with Paul, the Jew, the Pharisee, with a pedigree as long as your arm, but it didn't do him any good without Jesus. And bridging between Peter and Paul, you've got Stephen and Philip and Barnabas. But it's a book of people, particularly Paul. And even though it's a book of people and action, it's a book of speeches. There are 32 sermons in the book of Acts, and they're all worth noting. But the places, the four big places in the book of Acts, it's Jerusalem, Antioch, Ephesus, and Rome. We focused already a little bit on Jerusalem and Antioch, but Ephesus. Paul spent three years in Ephesus. It was one of the world-class cities. Uh, right, it had extensive highways. They dug a passage to the Aegean Sea. They had gathering places made of white marble to seat up to 25,000 in each arena. But Paul did more demolition work in Ephesus than in any other place. He tore down the idols and the high places and the Asherah poles. There was so much repentance in the city of Ephesus that Acts 19.19 reports that they had a bonfire where they burned their false religious paraphernalia and the value of it, depending on how you kind of match it up with today's 
dollar, but about $10 million worth of, of witchcraft material was burned in one day. And I want to ask you the question, is there anything in your home today that ought to be burned in a bonfire? Let God clean house for you. When Jesus went into the temple and cleaned house, that wasn't the only house cleaning in the Bible. The book of Acts says the whole city of Ephesus was cleaned out. Is there any literature of vain philosophy? Is there any sexually explicit material that needs to be hauled to the dump? Allow God to inspect everything, every cupboard, every drawer, every file on your computer, and cleanse it and purge it as He did in Ephesus. But then we come to Rome. The city of Rome is where Paul spent seven years. The longest period of time for Paul. It's amazing. They love celebration. The city of Rome had 159 national holidays. That's almost every other day there was a national holiday. And 93 of them were government subsidized. The government poured money into public celebrations in Rome. That's like every third day there was something the, the, the government was paying for some big holiday. I would have loved it. Oh, what are we celebrating today? But Paul took on Rome. It's absolutely incredible. The last we see of Paul, he's, he's there in Rome teaching the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. God loves taking on the cities of the world. Now, with all of that, what we find through the book of Acts is that God is pouring out His Spirit and filling His people. He fills Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2. He fills it a second time, Acts chapter 4. He fills Stephen, Acts chapter 6. He fills Paul, Acts chapter 9. He fills Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. He fills Antioch in Syria, the beginning of Acts chapter 13. And He fills Antioch in Turkey at the end of Acts chapter 13. He fills a prison cell, Acts chapter 16. And He fills Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. Now, when it comes to preparing for Pentecost, God gave time for the early church to prepare. And He gives time to us to prepare. And you know why we're to prepare? Because God does not give His pearls to swine. God is not going to pour out the fullness of His Holy Spirit unless we're ready for it. He prepares us. He wants to get rid of the garbage in our lives before He gives the pearl, the jewel of the Holy Spirit. And so, in preparation, He gives the promise of the Father to give us faith for what's coming on Pentecost. He shows us our need by making us desperate. He shows that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, we will never accomplish the works of God. It is not by strength nor by might, but by His Spirit. And He gives us a hunger for Him. He ignites within us a holy hunger that prepares us to come and receive everything that He has for us. No, if you take the Holy Spirit out of the book of Acts, you would never have the book of Acts. You'd have the book of aches and pains, the book of anguish, the book of anxiety, the book of arguments. 
And tragically, too many of our own lives reflect the absence of the Holy Spirit more than the presence. Now, brothers and sisters, very briefly, God help me. I want to just tell you five things about the Holy Spirit. This isn't in your notes. Five quick things. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a loving Spirit. Romans 5.5 Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. Brothers and sisters, if you have had any trouble believing the love of God, you have a problem with the Holy Spirit that He can fix. He can fix it today. The Holy Spirit can pour out into your heart the love of God like you've never known that kind of love before. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is a praying Spirit. The Bible says none of us knows how to pray as we ought. Romans 8.26 We do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness with groanings too deep to utter. If you feel like your prayer life is not functioning properly, the Holy Spirit can fix it. He's a praying Spirit. That's why it says Ephesians 6.18 Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer. The Holy Spirit will give you prayers you've never had before. If you can't pray as you want, it's because you're relying on yourself. Don't rely on yourself. Rely on the Holy Spirit. He'll pray through you. He's a praying Spirit. Number three, He's a powerful Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's a powerful Spirit. He will work signs and wonders. It's not the acts of the apostles. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Now listen to me carefully. This is where the rubber meets the road. Listen to me carefully. We know That Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. We know that there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. But Jesus cannot save the world alone. He needs you and me. He has sovereignly arranged it that way. That's why it is as important for you to be clothed with power to fulfill God's mission as it was for Jesus to be clothed with power to fulfill His mission. The power is not in you. It's in Him. You don't have to try to do it on your own. Receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He's a loving Spirit. He's a praying Spirit. He's a powerful Spirit. Number four, He's a fruitful Spirit. He's fruitful. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Galatians chapter 5. He's a fruitful Spirit. All that fruit, God wants to produce a bumper crop of righteousness in you, not by yourself, but by the Holy Spirit. And number five, the Holy Spirit is a verbal. Witnessing testifying Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always glorifying Christ. He's always testifying to Christ. Jesus said, 
I'm going to the Father, but I'm sending you another, and He will bear witness to me. The Holy Spirit is always bearing witness to Jesus. And listen to me, the same Holy Spirit that is always bearing witness to Jesus, when He comes upon you, He will make it possible for you to always be bearing witness to Jesus. We are a Trinitarian people. One God, three persons. The Father sent Jesus and is always sending Jesus. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is always being sent. But the Holy Spirit then in turn glorifies Christ so that Christ can give all the glory to the Father. Hallelujah. 